Let's pray. Oh God, how many times have we sung things like, I know with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom. But Lord, this morning as we look at this, I just pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to know this above all things. God, to know this in a way that, that is real, a way, God, that, that impacts the way that we live our lives. God, a, a way that, that fuels our worship. And so, God, we come this morning. You know that we are weak, frail human beings, but we are praying for your Holy Spirit to come and to be with us. Lord, we're praying for the unction of the Holy Spirit through your word to bring the message to us this morning. God, we are praying for you to open our hearts to hear that message and to receive it by faith. Oh, dear God, we pray that in all these things that we would see Jesus that we would see Jesus and give thanks to him. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Today we're going to look at a passage that is one of the most familiar and, and beloved texts in, in all the Bible. I mean, even those people who don't go to church oftentimes know this verse. It's most likely the most memorized, the most preached, and, and the most quoted of all Bible verses. As a matter of fact, as I understand it, that uh, many Bible translators, when it comes to translating the Bible in a new language, will, will uh, translate this verse first because it just sort of summarizes in a nutshell the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. And of course... The verse I'm talking about is John 3.16. So I want to look at that this morning as, along with its context. Last week we started a, a new Easter mini-series on penal substitution. And we said that's really just a, a fancy way of talking about the idea that Jesus is the substitute for his people by taking the penalty that was due them for their sins. That's why penal substitution, the, he's a substitute for that penalty and last week we looked at Exodus 12 and the Passover meal, which is an Old Testament picture of penal substitution where the, the Israelites were to take a lamb and they were to kill that lamb and they were to take his blood and they used it to cover the sins of the people in the home where the meal was eaten to satisfy the judgment of God. And we know from the New Testament that that Passover meal points to Jesus and his sacrifice upon the cross. And I want us to look at this morning at that sacrifice that Christ uh, gave and observe what it teaches us about why Jesus was sent from heaven to die upon the cross. And I want us to do it in terms of the atonement, of that, that covering that God gives for our sins, that payment that he makes for our sins. So I'm going to use that word atonement over and over in my points. And the first thing I want us to see is the need for atonement that we have. In the beginning of John chapter 3, uh, Jesus and Nicodemus, remember he was a religious leader in Israel, they had been dis discussing how somebody gets into the kingdom of heaven. 
And Jesus insisted that the only way into the kingdom is to be born again. That is to be given new life through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Well, obviously, Nicodemus did not understand that. And he thought that Jesus was talking about physically. And he's like, look, dude, I'm an old man. There is no way I'm going to go back into my mom's body and to be born a second time. Of course, Jesus replies by saying that he knows what he's saying is true because he himself has come from heaven. And then in verses 14 and 15, then Jesus goes on to explain why he left heaven and come and came to earth. That Jesus says that what happened in the desert with the Israelites like 1,500 years earlier must happen to him as well. And of course, he's referring to what we read this morning from Numbers chapter 21 in which the, the people of Israel were complaining and grumbling against Moses and against God. And it's interesting, as you look at their argument, you know, the Israelites are saying, well, there's no water, there's no bread. Well, obviously, at this point in time, Jesus had given them manna. And you guys remember what the manna was. They would just wake up every morning and there would be like this layer with the dew of the morning. They would go and they would pick it up and there was this bread that they could eat. And, I mean, it was just miraculous the way that God provided this. And yet they said they had no bread. And it was just because they were tired of it. They wanted variety. They would have made good Americans, right? We like variety. We like choices, you know? And uh, they didn't like that. So for the Israelites, it's not enough that God had rescued them from Egypt, nor that he had supernaturally provided food and water for them in the wilderness. As far as they were concerned, it was taking way too long to get to the promised land. And so they began to grumble against God and Moses as God's representative. Well, brothers and sisters, this is just not a great and perfect picture of even our, uh, our pride and discontentment of, of an ungrateful and a selfish heart. You know, these Israelites were fully convinced that they could do a better job managing their situation than what God was doing. And so in judgment for their rebellion and their grumbling, God sent poisonous snakes above the, uh, among them. And the numbers tells us that many of them died because they were bitten by these poisonous snakes. And so Jesus points a, a comparison here. He's making here not just as to what will happen to him, but also the condition that we are in as well. And like the Israelites in the desert, we stand under the wrath and the judgment of God. And we read this throughout the Bible. But just a, a couple of verses to sort of point that out. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all born sinners. Now, you look at that and you say, well, I know some people that are nicer than others. As a matter of fact, I know some very kind people. Well, the reality is the Bible tells us that even they are born sinners. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on in Romans 3, verse 10. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, because none of us completely in our lives lives for the glory of God. None of us lives for the focus of pleasing and honoring and worshiping God in all of our lives. There's a, there's a part of us that is just selfish that wants things that please us. And so our circumstances may be different than that of the Israelites, but our heart is the same, the Bible tells us. God has placed us in the world that he has made and he has provided us everything that we have. 
And so God has the right to expect that we will respond to him in trust and in thanks and to worship. But instead, what do we do? We grumble. We, we complain. You know, we think that we can take charge of our own lives and we can do a better job. Now, our grumbling might look a little bit different than that of the Israelites. And maybe even our grumbling amongst each other may look a little bit different. You know, for some of us, uh, we envy the lifestyle of other people when we compare what we have or we don't have with what they have. Some of us feel fulfilled in acquiring material possessions more so than we enjoy uh, God in his presence. And so we get very frustrated when the Lord doesn't give us what we want. Some of us are dissatisfied with relationships that God has given to us or he has withheld from us. And we don't understand that. And we're grumble against God. Some of us don't like what God says about our sexuality. Others don't like the idea of any authority outside of ourselves. Still others of us chafe at what God says about money. And all of us find it intolerable that God has made us to love him rather than to love ourselves. Now don't get me wrong, we don't mind loving God as long as we can love ourselves as well. But God has given us and has created us and made us and given us everything that we need that he might be the focus of our lives. And whatever form it takes, we are all guilty of rebellion against God who has made us and we stand under his judgment. But isn't it easy for us to see our serious sins as rebellion but to minimize our smaller sins and forget the deadly and destructive nature of all sin. I mean, think about it. I mean, even as Christians, is there not times when we wrestle with those besetting sins? You know, it might be the sin of your tongue. You just have such a sharp tongue. And it seems like, you know, before you know what's happening, you've just cut somebody down. Or you've gotten angry. Or you've just said stuff that you regret later. Or, or maybe it's the lust of your heart and you desire things of the flesh and maybe you even struggle with pornography or whatever it might be. Whatever the besetting sins might be, as Christians you just struggle with that and you say, God, please help me. And you find yourself falling once again into that sin. And after you do, you stand before God and you feel the guilt of that sin. And you just say, oh God, please forgive me. I am overwhelmed with that guilt. But do we have that same sense of the destructive nature of sin when merely saying an unkind word to someone? Do we see that just as offensive to God as those quote-unquote serious sins that we wrestle with? Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins, and he talks about how there are certain sins in the church that are acceptable. It just seems like it's okay if you're proud, or it's okay if you get angry, And he just began to name a few sins that we don't really see as serious as we ought to see. And the result is, is as we fall into this mindset, we can think that we're not as sinful as we really are. And so we can fail to see our need of God's atonement. As we wake up every day, we don't necessarily come to the cross of Jesus Christ and say, Oh Lord, help me this day, for I am weak and I need your strength. I need your atoning grace each and every day because maybe we think too highly of ourselves. It's so easy to forget our daily need of the atonement for our sins. 
parents, let me ask you this. Have you thought about this in relationship to your children? I mean, we talk a lot about training our children and raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we need to do that. We, we must never forget that we, though, that we cannot train the sin out of our children's hearts. Their sin must be atoned for. That we must take them back to the cross of Jesus Christ and help them to see that there will never be a change in their heart unless the work of the Holy Spirit is there. You know, we also talk about the importance of spiritual disciplines and being in the Word of God and, and in prayer and about training ourselves in godliness and righteousness. And we need to do those things. But friends, we must not forget that we cannot discipline ourselves out of sin. That our sin must be atoned for. So parents, as you work with your children, Christians, as you seek to go about growing in spiritual disciplines, don't forget to apply the gospel to your life and to your children's life and the atoning death of Christ, that, that they need Christ. They need him. They need his work in their life. Well, that brings us to the second thing that we see here in, this, in these verses, and that is the, the nature of the atonement, the nature of that covering. It, in response to God's judgment, the Israelites in the desert asked Moses to pray that God would take these poisonous snakes away. They knew that they couldn't remove God's judgment, that they were at the mercy of God's judgment, and only God could do that, and so they prayed. And so God, in reply, told Moses to make a bronze snake and to lift it up on a pole. And anyone who was bitten by this snake, if they would just look to the snake on the pole, then they wouldn't die. Now, why a, a bronze snake? Well, the text doesn't just come right out and tell us, but the, the logic that we see here seems to be the same as every other means of atonement that God has provided for Israel. That there's nothing magical about it, but like the Passover lamb or the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, that the bronze snake was a symbol of Israel's condemnation and judgment. As a matter of fact, there's really two things that are going on there as the people are looking at the snake. First of all, Israel is acknowledging the justice of God's judgment. What they're saying in essence by looking at that snake is, God, we have sinned against you. And we know that your judgment is right and that your judgment is true. But they're also, at the same time, while they're admitting their, their sin and that God's judgment is righteous, they are also depending upon the promise that God gave that if they looked in humble, dependent faith upon that, a snake that they would not die. And Jesus goes on to say that just as Moses lifted up that snake so that the Son of Man, that is Christ himself, must be lifted up. Now, for Nicodemus hearing this, I mean, it might have been something to hear that Jesus was claiming to be the messianic Son of Man, but probably even more shocking was the fact that Jesus was saying that he would be crucified. Now, where, where do I get that? Well, it, that, that's the Greek word for this idea of being lifted up, that he would be uh, crucified. And, and Jesus said that he must be crucified. Now, why? Well, because it was to fulfill what the scripture said. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 52, you know that Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant who would come, the Messiah. And in Isaiah 52, 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. It's that same idea there, that he will be crucified, he would be lifted up. And so according to Jesus, that bronze serpent in the desert 
was not merely a symbol of our judgment, but also a picture that a substitute would actually suffer our judgment in our stead. So this is the nature of Christ's atonement, that he would be lifted up on a cross and he would be condemned as a criminal in our stead in order to suffer the penalty that we deserve. And all this being part of God's plan. I mean, Isaiah was talking about this. And, and in scriptures even before this, that this was God's plan. Other scriptures we read, we realize that this was God's plan uh, even before the creation of the world. We saw that in the beginning of Ephesians. And so Jesus comes as sort of a, a unique person. He's both God and fully man. Uh, so, so Jesus uh, did not, he did not stand under God's judgment. He had lived a perfect life. He had never disobeyed. He had always done the will of his father. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, actually, that's like my food. That's what nourishes me is to do the will of my father. And so he never grumbled against God and he never sought his own will over the will of the father. And so Jesus was that perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God. Do you remember we talked about that last week? About how in the Passover meal, they couldn't just grab any old lamb. They had to go get their best 4-H lamb. The one that was perfect, the one that was the prized lamb, and they had to sacrifice that. And Jesus is that lamb. As a matter of fact, John, when he saw Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But not only is he put that perfect uh, substitute or sacrifice, but he also is a perfect substitute for us as human beings. Uh, he could be our substitute. You see, there were animal sacrifices given in the Old Testament just to sort of train the Israelites that there had to be this ultimate sacrifice that was given to take away their sins. But the Bible says that those animal sacrifices did not take away the sins once and for all. Those sacrifices had to be repeated. We see that in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 and, verse, and chapter 7. And so there was these repeated sacrifices, but they could not take those away. But Jesus... As a sinless man, as a sinless human being, could offer himself as a substitute, and he actually took away the sins of his people once and for all. Now, most of us have heard this since we were this high. You know, we have heard this, but the question is, do we believe this? Do we believe this? You know, in the same way, I think that it's easy to fall into the trap that our serious sins are worthy of God's judgment, but our smaller sins can be overlooked. I think we can also fall into the trap that our sin is so bad that Jesus could never pay the penalty for what we have done. You know, it's, it's, you know some people have said to me, oh, but Pastor Rick, if you only knew me, if you only know what I had done, if you only knew my past you would know that there's no way that my sins could be forgiven. And, and I understand that you may feel that God can't forgive you, but to think that is to underestimate the great power of God to forgive. I, I understand that you may feel like God can't forgive you, but, to, but do not confuse your unwillingness to forgive yourself as God's inability to pay for your sin. There is no sin so great that Jesus' sacrifice of his life cannot pay for your sin. Now, why would God send his son to die for sinners? 
Well, that brings us to our third point, and that's the motivation that we see here for atonement. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. According to Jesus, the motivation for his substitutionary death on the cross is the love of God the Father for the world. You know, I think so oftentimes we read John 3.16 as if it's something uh, telling us about the intensity of God's love or the quantity of God's love. You know, God's love is so much. And there is a sense in which the Bible does teach that, that God's love for his people is great. But I don't think that's what it's actually saying here. I, I think a better translation for this is to say that God loved the world in this way. In other words, how do we know that God loves the world? Look at the cross. How do we know what God's love looks like? Look at the cross. On the cross, God gave His Son as a sacrifice. His only Son. The incarnate second person of the Trinity. The Son whom the Father loved from eternity. And with whom He was well pleased. And God gave his son, and his son gladly laid down his life for his father to be a sacrifice for a sinful world bent on rebellion against him. It's not that the world had an inkling towards God. It's not that the world sort of loved God, and so God's like, I'll meet you halfway. The world is hostile to God. And God says, I will give you my most precious thing. I will give you my son who is a worthy lamb to pay your sacrifice. This is the one God gave, and he did because he loved the world. Now, what would compel God to love us so? I don't know. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. But for some reason, God set his affection upon his people, and it simply pleased God to set his love on those for whom he died. So what did Christ's death on the cross actually accomplish? And that brings us to the fourth thing, and that's the effect of the atonement. If the only statement that we had in John 3.16, we might think that Christ's sacrificial death uh, made salvation possible, but really felt short of actually accomplishing anything. But look at verse 17. It tells us, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The purpose of God in sending Christ into the world was not to make salvation a mere possibility, much less was it to condemn the world, but God sent his son into the world and salvation was accomplished through him, that is through Christ's death upon the cross as our substitute. So Christ's death on the cross is effective. It it actually accomplishes something. And what is it that it accomplished? Well, first of all, it, it endures God's condemnation so that we're not condemned. When Christ dies for us, we see that it exhausts God's wrath so that he is no longer angry with us. Now, we hear that, like I said, so much I mean, from the time we've been this little. But I want us to think about that this morning. When we talk about and we sing about you know, how he satisfied God's wrath, What does God do with those who do not place their faith in Jesus Christ and who die in their sin? They spend eternity in hell. 
I mean, and the Bible describes hell as a place of gnashing of teeth. I mean, I've talked to so many people who don't believe in Jesus, and they're like, oh, yeah, when I go to hell, I'll be with my friends forever, and we'll party, and we'll have a good time. And I'm like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. You're talking about anguish. You're talking about, and not only that, but you're talking about for all eternity. We live upon this earth for 70, 80, maybe 90 years, and then we die, and we go into eternity. But once we're in eternity, there is no end. So forever, with no ending, God pours out his wrath upon sinful man, and God is justified to do so because of their sin. That's the wrath of God. And Jesus Christ satisfied that wrath upon the cross and he paid the penalty so that justice is satisfied and so we will not be punished. Does that overwhelm anybody else that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that not amazing? As a result of Christ's death and the cross, sinners do not perish. But we also see that not only did he satisfy Christ's wrath, but we also see that he gives us eternal life as well. Now, what's eternal life? Well, you might say, well, that's life that doesn't end. And I'd say, okay, yeah, that's right. It's life that doesn't end. But it's really not so much talking about the duration of life as much as about the quality or the source of life. Eternal life is the life of the age to come. It's, 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 it's a life of heaven. It's, it's founded only upon Jesus Christ. Now, what does that eternal life look like completely? Well, we don't, maybe we don't know exactly. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the immortal life found in Christ will be characterized by glory and by power. It will be imperishable, incorruptible. And though we don't know exactly what that will be like, we know that it means that we will be more like Jesus Christ. And so it'll be a life that is very different, that changes us from the inside out. And so, yes, we still live on this earth. And as we live upon this earth, we still struggle with morality, uh, or excuse me, mortality, with weakness and frailty, with change and decay, and with shame and with sin and all these things. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, while we do experience those other things, there is a new life that is at work in us. And we even get a foretaste of that life that we will experience in heaven forever without sin. And so we see God working in us to make us more like Jesus Christ where we can live for the glory of God. We still are tempted to want to fulfill our own flesh and our own desires, but we now are free to live for God's glory. Brothers and sisters, are you living with that life in view? Or is your gaze distracted by the life of this world? Oh, that you could see that this world is, uh, the f- is like the flashy Vanity Fair. I mean, think about it. Have you ever taken your kids to the circus or to a carnival or anything? Or did you go as a kid? Maybe that's a better question. Did you ever go as a kid and you went on the, the midway and what did you see? Rides and games to play and cotton candy and all the music. And what did you think as a kid? Wow, this is like awesome. This is great. This is the greatest place in the world. I don't ever want to leave. But now imagine taking your kids to the, to the carnival or the fair. And what do you see? You see sugar that's like going to shoot them through the roof and never get them to go to sleep. You see games that are rigged to steal your kids' monies. 
you see the rides and you look at those and you think, man, those things are not always safe. And you begin to see, same situation, same circumstances, different eyes. And that can be the way that we can see things. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, He gives us different eyes. He allows us to see the world that looks so flashy and looks so good and the lust of the flesh and the desires of our lives and the things that we see as things that look so good. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have the eyes of adults and we see uh, heaven as the glorious thing that it is. And so finally, that brings us to verse 18 and to the response to atonement. Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross stands as a sharp division in the history of the world and in each one of our lives. There's no neutral stand, a place to stand in relation to God and the cross. Jesus couldn't be more clear here. Like the bronze snake set up as a standard and a sign in the middle of the camp to say to the Israelites, if you look to this, you will live, but if you don't, you will die. So the cross stands in the same way before us. And it's not an insurance policy that you can turn to when you decide that you need it. God is confronting you. He's confronting each and every one of us. And he's saying, look to the cross. And at the cross, you will see that God's judgment is true. It is right. You have sinned against God. You have sinned against others. But just as true is the promise that God gives you that if you will place your faith in Him, then He will forgive you and He will take away your judgment and He will give you a new eternal life in Him. Do you understand that the cross would never have happened if the world was not under God's judgment? Just the fact that Jesus came tells us that our world is under judgment. And if it was not, then the cross would not be necessary. Well, you can look away from the cross this morning and you can refuse to acknowledge the truth about your own heart. You can continue to plead the merits of your own so-called good life. Or you can say that maybe your life is so bad that God can't forgive you. You can continue to convince yourself that believing in God is foolish, that he doesn't raise the dead, that there will never be a final judgment or accounting. But if you do, if you refuse to believe in the name of God's one and only Son, then the Bible tells us that you will perish in your rebellion just as surely as those Israelites died in the wilderness. But it is a death that will last for all eternity, forever and ever and ever. Or, you can look to Jesus. You can believe that the death that he died, he died for you. He died in your place for your sin. You can rest in the knowledge that his death satisfied the penalty that you have earned for the things that you have done. It doesn't matter how bad you've been or how great your sin Jesus says that whoever believes, listen to this, will not perish. Whoever believes is not condemned. Everyone who believes is given eternal life. You are included in that wide open whoever 
if you turn away from your rebellion and your sin and you turn to him and put your faith in the God whose love is measured not by your feelings or by what you think, but by his actions. A love measured by the span of a wooden beam and nailed pierced hands. Oh, friends, look to Jesus today and be saved. Let's bow our heads this morning and think about these things that we've heard preached this morning. Lord, there's no question as we come to you this morning to see that all of us stand under your judgment. And God, even for those that claim your name, that have placed their faith in you, God, we are still very tempted, Lord, to view our sin in an unhealthy and an ungodly way. And therefore, Lord, we see ourselves in a different way. But Father, I pray that we would walk humbly before you uh, knowing the need of your grace. God, soften our hearts uh, towards, um, towards you. Lord, help us to see our sin as it is and bring us down humbly before you to depend upon the cross of Jesus Christ, to look to you daily uh, for the forgiveness of sins and for the strength, O oh God, to walk in newness of life. But Lord, I especially want to pray this morning for those that might be here that do not know you. Oh God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be like the hound of heaven that would not let any rest who are here today that do not believe in you. But Lord, I pray that you would prick their conscience. God, that this week that your Spirit would work in their hearts to see how magnificent your love is. And God, I know it is a love that is so great it is hard to accept God, it just the news sounds too good to be true. Oh, but Lord, I pray that you would open the hearts of those that do not know you, that they might bow their knee before you and place their trust in you and receive the eternal life that only you give. Oh God, to you be the glory. Help us as a church, God, to hold out this word of truth, not only to our own lives each and every day, but Lord, to the world around us as well. This week, I pray, Lord, for conversations that we might have as individuals with those at our work, at our neighborhood, wherever it might be, God, that we would be so overwhelmed with the gospel that we would be compelled to share that gospel with others. Give us a holy boldness, O oh God, regardless of what the other person says, even if they reject us. O oh Lord, help us to be bold to share the truth of the gospel. And we pray for your work in the hearts of the people who hear, that you would call to yourself those who would believe in you. We ask this in your name. Amen.